You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Jim Wolfrey, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast where we interview great sporting coaches to try and find ideas to help us all lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is one of the world's most successful golf coaches, Stephen Band. Steve became a professional golfer in 1979 and played on the Australian PGA Tour until 1996. His coaching career started in 1990 when he was appointed the founding head coach of the Victorian Institute of Sport. Steve has coached at over 40 majors, including 19 US Masters and six President's Cups. Along the journey, Steve has coached Stuart Appleby, KJ Choi, Robert Allenby, Cameron Percy, Nick Flanagan, He Young Park, Jennifer Johnson, and Danny Lee, just to name a few. Steve has also written four golf instructional books. The most popular, Simply Golf, Back to Basics, which has sold more than 300,000 copies, worldwide. The highlights of this discussion for me were how Steve describes that negative confidence works 100% of the time, but positive confidence works 50 to 70% of the time. And Steve gives great examples of how you can improve both forms through training. He also shares a great story of KJ Choi winning the 2010 Players' Championship in a playoff to illustrate this. Tapping into the aha moments in practice 
by focusing on trying to do something rather than not to do something, and how there are about 6,500 skills that every golfer can learn. Preparing them for these variances means that the coach is often, in the words of Steve, a glorified race car mechanic. We hope you enjoy this as much as Paul and I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. Steve Ban, hello and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hello, Paul. Thanks. How are you today? And, and probably a better question, where in the world are you and what have you been up to? I'm at uh, New Haven in Phillip Island in Victoria and it's uh, three o'clock in the afternoon and we're in about, uh, well, we're in regional Victoria, so we're not in this severe lockdown, but um, yeah, I'm just basically down here on the property playing with my chickens and my sheep and my veggie garden waiting for golf to start up again. <laughs> Well, we're glad to have a bit of time to talk to you about golf because uh, when I was preparing for this episode and I mentioned to some friends that we were speaking to a golf coach, they all gave me a list of questions to ask. So hopefully we can get through all of them in this, uh, this short time we got together. Steve, I'd like to start though by winding the clock back if I could, because you became a professional golfer in 81. Yeah. Now, flash forward to 2020, you've coached in over 40 majors including 19 U.S. Masters and six President's Cups. So I'd like to start by saying from this perspective, what is it you think that the great coaches do differently? Well, I think the great coaches, uh, if I can put myself in that category, and and thank you for (laughs) mentioning great coaches, but look, what you do, uh, you know, to have a a long relationship with with any client, any player, and to be continually working with them at the major tournaments, you've got to be more than just a swing coach. So the great golf coaches or the great coaches of any sport have the ability to identify what their athlete needs right at that time so they can play at their play at their best. So when you're coaching at a major, of course, you're not working on the golf swing. You Most times you're working on shots and strategy and the other skills so they can play their best that, uh, best that week. Which brings me to my next question, actually. What is the role of a golfing coach for today's professional golfer? Well, I think it's changed. Uh, it changed a lot. You know, I was over working in the US for, I guess, nearly, nearly 30 years. Uh, last I was 25 years, pretty much full-time over there working on the PGA Tour. But back then, basically, you had a coach and some players had a trainer. And some would go and see a sports psychologist every now and then. So the golf coach back then had to be everything, had to be holistic. You had to be the the mental coach, sometimes the physical coach, sometimes the strategy coach, the technique coach. These days, there's specialist coaches, there's putting coaches, there's short game coaches, there's strategy coaches, there's mental skills coaches, there's there's nutritionists, you know, it's it, because it's such a big money sport now and it's the team that's in the background uh, now is, is, is quite large that travels with these, uh, travel with a lot of these top players. Now, not all of them have that many support staff, but so the role of the coach, be it the head coach, is to coordinate all of that so the player can just go and play. And I think that's probably changed a lot in the last 25, 30 years. So then how would you describe your coaching style and philosophy? Philosophy, I, I would pride myself on saying that I'm holistic, being that golf is made up of technical, physical, mental, tactical and life skills outside of all of that. So there's the big, there's the big five. And uh, 
And I, I, I've never tried to lock myself into being a method coach where this is the method that I coach and everyone has to fit and, and swing it the same way. Uh, so I, I'm always trying to identify with the players I've worked with over the years what areas of their game that they can create a point of difference or separation from the rest of the field. Or otherwise, you're just playing like everyone else and hoping to have a good week every now and then. Actually, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this. Uh, I think you call it the improvement cycle model where you say, you know, a golfer's technical, physical, tactical and mental game must be constantly yeah. in focus. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about the uh, improvement cycle model and, and I think probably how you've applied it to some of your, your uh, famous uh, athletes. Well, look, the, the, the improvement cycle first starts with an assessment and there's a self-assessment and there's an external assessment. And let's say it's technique, because that's quite often the easiest thing, thing to, uh, to assess. So the idea is that you make an assessment of an area of your technique that needs improving, and then you put a goal in place of, of improving it, and then a strategy with skills to improve it over a set period of time. Now, typically that might be every three weeks or every four weeks, if it's every three weeks, in theory, you could do 17 improvement cycles a year. So you go and do your drills over those three weeks, you come back, reassess, and it starts again. So that's 17 times three gives you a week off for Christmas, by the way. So it's just constant, never-ending never ending improvement. But uh, sometimes you might run an improvement cycle for, for two or three months. It depends on whether it's a short-term or a long-term thing. So the same could apply for, for physical, something physical, something mental, something tactical and something technical um, but technical can also go into skills so there's a lot of skills in the game from 11 shot categories and nine different shapes with all of those categories not counting wind and lies so there's about six and a half thousand skills that every golfer can learn and it's a bit like uh, a bit like music when you finish one piece you, you go oh hang on there's now i'm going to start another one it's it's endless really you don't need to have all of those skills or anywhere close to that many to be able to play world-class golf so it's not that intimidating but the idea is we're always trying to find something that's going to give you the edge so you can play with a little bit more a little bit more confidence so the improvement cycle as the, the word cycle suggests is it's make an assessment set a goal put a strategy in place to achieve that in a timeline and then just keep going round and round. It's basic. It's basis of goal setting. Six and a half thousand shots. I had, I had no idea. I'm a very poor amateur golf that plays a couple of times a year, but if you're watching a professional, are you able to highlight or find the one or two or three or four shots within that six and a half thousand that need improvement? Or does that take analysis and time and, you know, statistical evaluation? Well, you're very, very rarely will it show up in technique because it's um, the technology for, you know, using, you know, launch monitors now like TrackMan, FlightScope, uh, BodyTrack, we can measure pressure pressure mapping, um, swing catalysts through the, through the feet and high-speed video. I mean, we're, I've got 240 frames a second now on my iPhone. We're back when I started at the Institute of Sport back in 1991, I think we had about 120 frames a second on a system called a Vicon system, which was about $100,000. <laughs> so now we've got, you know, the ability to, to use high-speed video on a, on, a, on a phone and then 
send it overseas for somebody to look at in you know within a minute. So the technology's changed, but very rarely will it will it have anything to do. Well, it'll have to once you learn the technique of that skill. So here are the six thousand or six and a half thousand skills. So there's eleven shot categories. So there's driver, fairway medals, long irons, mid irons, short irons, chipping, pitching, bunkers. Uh, long, mid and short cuts. So there's the 11 categories. In each of those categories, there's nine different trajectories, except when the ball's on the ground. So it's uphill, downhill, uh, right to left, left to right, and the four points in, in between. Well, low, medium, high, draw, fade and straight. This is all in perfect weather on a flat line. Then you've got eight lies, which is uphill, downhill, right to left, and the, and the four points in between. And then you've got eight wins. So so it's sort of 11 times 9 times 8 times 8. And then we haven't even got into rough humidity, altitude. So, it's, so the job of the golf coach is always trying to find, oh, okay, we're, we're playing in Denver this week at 7,000 feet. The ball's going to fly about 20% further. We need to make some calculations of uh, how we're going to be able to play there. Yeah, so it's, okay. it's a lot of fun. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a glorified race, race car mechanic. Sounds more like a science than a sport, to be, to be perfectly frank. I found this quote from you, and now I can see, actually, with that context, why this quote came up when I was researching. It says, negative confidence works 100% of the time, but positive confidence works 50 to 70% of the time. So, Steve, I was wondering if you could share a story of how your coaching has helped you improve the confidence um, of a player and therefore led to better results. Look, I, I think uh, if we really want to summarise mental skills, the one mental skill we're all looking for is confidence, is that belief that I can hit this shot. Right now when I need to, I need to hit this shot and I believe I can hit this shot. And we've all experienced it at different levels at different times, even if it's only every now and then, you know, during a round of golf. So. The idea is that we, we pick the skills that each golfer needs to play well. Now, those six and a half thousand, you don't need anywhere near that many, but everyone needs to have a stock shot off the tee. They need to have a good short game, which covers all the shots that they're going to get within inside, you know, say 80 to 100 yards. And, um, you know, their approach shots. And they've got to have a wind shot and a hold-up shot, but you don't need the six and a half thousand. So what we're trying to do is put together a practice program with a package of all the shots that they're likely to encounter at the series of tournaments coming up and then within that practice program build confidence now when they find out that they can't actually play a shot you are building a form of confidence <laughs> um, in the fact that you know you can't play it so this is where I, where I might say something like, well, negative confidence works 100% of the time. So you might have been working on a five-iron fade shot from 180 yards and you just can't hit it. You can't hit the fade shot. So you get to the tournament and the pin's tucked on the right, you're 180 yards out and your caddy says, well, I think we need to fade a five-iron in here. Your brain knows because you've been practising that shot that you can't hit it. So you get up and try and hit it anyway with the thought in the back of your mind that you know you can't hit it and that negative confidence will work 100% of the time. You will hit a terrible shot <laughs> because you, you pictured hitting a terrible shot, you felt hitting a, a terrible shot, you set up anticipating hit a terrible shot and you succeeded. Beautiful, works every time. <laughs> 
So, but you know, the unfairness, uh, not the unfairness, but the beauty of golf is that if you have been practicing that five iron fade from 100, 180 yards and you're succeeding well in practice and then you get up, you recall that practice success, you've got the caddy calls, the 180, faded in there, started at that tree, faded in there, you get over it, you see it, you feel it, you put the swing on it just like you want to put it on. And only about 50%, 70% of the time will it actually come off because golf's a hard game. But then the thing is that, that, that you, can, you can build on that because that you know that you technically didn't do anything wrong. I made the swing, I saw the swing, I felt the swing, I made a good swing at it and the shot just didn't come off. So then, um, you know, that's, that's golf. But if you're standing up there thinking you're going to stuff up, you will succeed 100% of the time. Steve, is there a, an example or a story that you could share where you've helped the athlete, the golfer, lift their confidence and it's just led to a special moment, a result that was perhaps not expected? Oh, look, I, I would say, um, look, there's, there's lots of them that I'm thrilled to have been a part of. And the caveat there is I never swung at any of those shots, so I can't take too much, too much credit for it, but... Um, KJ Choi was known for his fade, and that was his stop shot, was his, was his fade. And his nemesis at the Players' Championship, the 17th hole at Sawgrass, which was the nemesis to, for, a lot of, for a lot of people. And we'd been working um, for a few months, building up, so being able to hit a draw in a left-to-right wind when he needed to. We could hit it in practice, but we were testing it and really raising the, the sort of the pressure level and the number of repetitions that he had to succeed. So he was building his confidence so he, he could recall that practice success and hit it in, in a tournament. Well, the uh, Players' Championship back in 2010, uh, KJ's coming down the stretch and he's pretty much toe-to-toe with David Toms. And David Toms had a one-shot lead um, playing the 15th hole and it was a back-left pin and KJ had about a five-iron in and the wind was out of the left. Now, that in the past was a shot that he would lose off, you know, to the right-hand side of the green most times, possibly miss the green, have to chip up and save his par. Well, KJ has hit this beautiful draw that's held up against the wind and hit it into about 10 feet. Tom's has hit the green. He's made par. KJ's missed the putt. But the next hole, they go down 16. Uh, David Tom's hits it in the water with a one-shot lead makes a bogey. So now they're tied. The 17th hole, the pin is on the right-hand side, front right, which is always is on Sunday, and the wind is into out of the left. Now that is a shot where KJ normally would just start well left and at best hit it to about 40 foot left of the pin and have to make a big two putt over the rise down to the hole. Because if he starts anything just left of the pin into, it hits the fade, it's, it's, in, it's in the water. KJ gets up and hits a nine iron that he starts it at the pin and the ball starts to turn away from the pin and the wind holds it up. It drops down about 15 feet just over the, uh, over the, um, over the water. 15 feet, makes the putt for birdie, takes a one-shot lead. Tom's birdie to the 18th. KJ eventually wins in a playoff back on the 17th hole. So what actually happened at the start of that week was we actually practised every day for over on the left-hand side of the range from about 150 yards, sorry, the right-hand side of the range into a left-to-right wind with a nine-iron and you just practice draw after draw after draw 
hitting into that left to right wind for that one shot. When he had the chance to hit it, he actually drew on the confidence of the one he hit on 15, got up and hit it on 17 and, you know, went on and became the, the first Korean or first Asian to win the Players' Championship. So it was a, a pretty special moment when you saw and when you understood the background of how he had the confidence to actually hit that shot under all that pressure on one of the scariest holes in golf. Oh, great story. Thanks for sharing it, Steve. But could I circle back actually and just talk about the, the role of the caddy? So it sounds like the caddy maybe steps occasionally into coaching territory or is there a real, is there a defined line between will, what they will and will not say? Oh, look, it depends on the relationship with the player and the, uh, and the caddy. Um, uh, the, the, some caddies are, 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 I mean, they're the co-pilot. And they, you know, they they do everything but take and take the controls. Others are basically just carrying the bag, <laughs> keep keep up and shut up. I think it's the old the old saying. But the, and there's another saying in golf. There's a question, and there's a statement. And this is the the relationship between a player and a caddy. When the player asks the question, "What shot do you think I should hit here?" Then he expects that caddy to have all the information to give him a def- definite answer of this is the shot that you need to play here. Now the good caddies will know all of their stats and all their percentages of all the shots that they succeed in under pressure and he's not going to pull out a shot that, that he knows that his play is a good chance he's not going to not going to pull off. So and then there's the question and then there's the statement and this is where sometimes the caddies cross the line where the player says, I like five iron drawing here and the caddy goes, oh my God not the five-iron draw. <laughs> so then he ends up crossing the line. Even if the caddy is right and he pulls the player away and talks him into another shot, he's undermined the relationship for the future and that player's own self-confidence because he'd made a call and the caddy's going, no, I don't think you can hit it. It's just, you know, and that's, uh, that's probably getting close to the exit door for your job with a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Steve, can I talk about the, the yips? Um, when I told some friends we were, I was going to interview a, a golf coach and I said, what question should I ask? All of them, all of them want to know and want to talk about the yips. Now mm-hmm. I should give some context cause I, and I hope I get this story right, but you've unfortunately, I guess, or fortunately, depending on which way you look at it, have firsthand experience with the yips. And there was the, uh, the 1988 Australian masters where you slipped from first to seventh in the final three holes. These days, I imagine 
professional golfers, amateur golfers, all people want to talk to you about it. And I'm wondering, how do you help golfers deal deal with the yips, particularly, you know, when they're in a pressure situation like that? Let me firstly sort of define the difference between the, the yips is after you have probably multiple setbacks like I had at the Australian Masters. You know, I had a two-shot lead with three holes to play. Um, I wasn't supposed to win. I was a club pro at the time. There was six of the ten top ten players in the world, Norman, Feldo, Langer, and, uh, and here's me as a club pro with a two-shot lead with three holes to play. Now, right up until that point on the day, I was nine under for the day, and all I was thinking about was hitting it close and making putts. And then I stood up in the 16th hole, and I remember my mindset changed. That The out-of-bounds fence was on the right-hand side at Huntingdale um, <clears throat> on the 16th hole back in, in 88, and that was... Uh, and then the left-hand side was dense tea tree, but that's where all the crowd, you know, the crowd couldn't go up the right-hand side. So there was, I, I did my apprenticeship at Huntingdale, so there was a lot of Huntingdale members there. I was a club pro at Box Hill, so there was a lot of Box Hill members there. I lived in Melbourne, so there was a lot of my family members there. I was a member at Riversdale, so there was a lot of Riversdale members there. So I got halfway through the downswing, and I remember thinking... And this is in 0.25 of a second, by the way. That's how long the downswing takes. I remember thinking, don't hit it out of bounds. So it's the first time that I don't hit it out of bounds. And then there's this involuntary, my right hand's taken over and I've hit this snap hook. Now, the reason I mentioned all those people there was I was hoping that it was going to at least hit one of them. But it didn't. It missed the whole lot of all those people out there watching me play and ended up unplayable and I took a, took a double bogey. And then, um, you know, I did something silly on the next hole. I ran my par putt uh, trying to make it and uh, ended up hitting it too far past and missed the one coming back, which wasn't wasn't as bad and then part the last. But but the, the mindset changed. I remember clearly for the first time I thought I can win this and I tried not to do something. And that was, you know, and I researched how to perform under pressure you know, up until that point, but then uh, that was sort of the start of my quest to, you know, if I'm going to be a full-time golf coach, which uh, that event pr pretty much delegated me that uh, from there I became the uh, men's state coach and that went on to become the Institute of Sport Coach when they introduced golf into, into Victoria. Had I actually won that tournament, I would have got some starts over, overseas and I would have gone back playing full-time and I would have missed those two opportunities. So I still to this day call it a fortuitous choke. But that was more of a choke than the yips. Now, the, your question was the yips. Now, the, the yips is very much an involuntary reflex. The neuro, uh, neurologists tell us it's, it's a thing called a neuro shutdown, which is basically when your brain is anticipating something so traumatic is about to happen, it actually shuts down. And it's like shuts down and puts you into like sleep mode. And then there's this sudden start as you come back out of it, which can be a twitch or great players hit the ball off the green from three feet away because it's such a, it's not something that you can, you can control. So the, the yips and a choker, if you keep on choking, you'll eventually end up with the yips, but they're, they're two very different things. How do you overcome it? Well, you identify any part of the technique that can be improved and then you develop a practice uh, routine where you test that and then slowly and consistently build confidence over time. And then you've got to have the discipline to choose recalling that practice success 
and have the willpower to get through that in a competition. And then when you do, your brain goes, oh, I can do this. And then you're, then you're off and running again. What an answer. Long-winded answer. Hopefully, hopefully it makes a bit of sense for some of you, some of your questions, people asking the question. I'm sure my dad and my brother will be uh, taking notes and replaying that section. But what I... Um, there's, what no, I there's no quick fix. There's no, there's no quick fix pill. Um, it's there for a reason because of a technical flaw or, or, or because of a, you know, you get in your own way mentally. Uh, so you've got to find a way to train yourself to get the right mindset and improve the technique so you can actually hit that shot. I think it's also a great illustration of mindset, how you saw that sliding doors moment taking you in a different direction with your life that I guess in some ways leads us to this conversation today. Um, But I'd like to talk a little bit about self-doubt because just getting building on that idea of boundaries and you talking about that story on the fairway and you've said that the biggest uh, problem or limitation with golfers is boundaries. Uh, it's never the target. And I'm wondering, how do you help golfers deal with self-doubt and intimidation? Because I imagine it, it must creep in quite regularly. So much time on the golf course, walking, thinking, getting sort of trapped in your own head. It, look, it all comes down to your preparation again. But the, yeah, the biggest intimidation in golf is the boundary. Here's the problem. If you look at most practice fairways, and this is one of the things that I identified from even my own practice, we get comfortable with a shot that we like hitting and we're just swinging away on this wide open practice fairway with a stack of balls there. And if we don't like the shot, we just pull another one over and hit another one. And we get into this beautiful groove and we think, oh, I've got it. You know, I'm just flushing shot after shot after shot. And then somewhere between there and the first tee, which might be less than 100 metres away, and is in most cases, you wander over there and you look down the first fairway and your brain goes, what the heck is that? And now there's trees, bunkers, out-of-bounds fences, rough water hazard, the next group standing around watching you, and all of a sudden you've got all of these boundaries and restrictions. It's what's on the outside. The middle of the fairway was no threat at all until you actually put a... uh, put a boundary there and I've always used the the plank of wood you know that might be a one foot wide plank of wood five meters long you put it on the ground and you say walk up and down that plank of wood and everyone walks up and down the plank of wood no problem at all you lift it up a meter off the ground now walk up and down the plank you're a little bit more careful now you lift it two meters off the ground and eventually you can see where I'm going. So now when you're 10 meters off the ground, you're now on all fours crawling across the, the plank of wood. It's still the same plank of wood, but it's what's on the outside and the consequence, which is what's the intimidation. It's not the actual, I can walk up and down this all day long. So how do you fix it? Well, you set up boundaries in your practice and then you practice three in a row skills. And it's as simple as that. And and you go, we use the 10% rule. So if it's a 200-yard shot, you put a 20-yard boundary out there because that actually matches about PGA Tour average. From all the different distances, you're averaging about 10% from the pin or 10% from the fairway. So 20-metre so boundary, now you've got three in a row through there. So the first one's easy. The second one's easy, easier, not as easy. And then the third one, now you feel exactly like you feel out on the golf course. Because if you don't get that third one through there, you've got to start again. And you just keep doing that three in a row until eventually you can stand up there, pipe that third shot through there. Then when you take that 100-metre walk to the first tee, you look up and look down the fairway and you go, 
this is just like my three in a row, I'm going to do it again. That's all there is to it. It's as simple as that. If you, if you simulate what you're going to feel in practice, you've got a much better chance of recalling that practice success and executing it on the golf course. Steve, you, you have really interesting views on using positive emotional anchoring. Could you tell us about this concept and how you work with golfers to apply it? Uh, one of the things that I learned, you know, years uh, years ago, and uh, I didn't know this when I was when I was still playing, but um, you know, I'm a big fan of all a lot of these uh, mental coaches, performance coaches, but I love a lot of Tony Robbins stuff. And Stuart Appleby, early in his career, did a uh, Tony Robbins course, and we, as we as he was going through that, we were talking about a lot of the things in that course. And one of the things that uh, Tony Robbins talked about was everything that stays in your long-term memory is because there's an emotional shift attached to it. So we remember things like birthday parties, first kiss, first day at school, falling off your bike, getting in a fight at school. Nobody remembers what you did the day before, the day afterwards. So sometimes it's a positive thing, sometimes it's a negative thing, but everything that gets anchored in your memory is because there's an emotional shift. What we tend to do when we practice is let's say we're hitting 10 balls. So you hit nine balls just the way you want to hit them and there's no emotional shift and then you hit a bad shot, even in practice. And then you get angry, you get frustrated, you get disappointed. So the only time there was an emotional shift, even though you just hit nine out of 10 shots well, the only time there was an emotional shift was when you hit the bad shot. And if this continues on, this this approach to your practice, eventually the only thing that your story in your long-term memory is the, is the failures and they become easier to recall because you've actually anchored them with an emotional shift. There's no way you can be a robot and have no emotion. So what you've got to do is be more balanced with your approach. Everyone's going to get angry. Everyone's going to get frustrated. Everyone's going to get disappointed. But when you hit a good shot, get excited, get pumped up, get happy. And then that way, because you're hitting more good shots than bad shots, is, is if you balance out the emotional shift attached to the two, it's a much more fun way of playing golf. Then what sticks in your long-term memory is the successes, and they, even though the other ones are still there, they'll pop up. You'll have the ability of pushing them to the background because you'll be able to recall more success because you've chosen to have a good positive mental attitude towards when you succeed rather than, oh, well, I'm meant to hit it well because I'm a good golfer. And, uh, and that's what, you know, we've always tried to do. So when I see a player getting angry and frustrated, I don't tell them to calm down and, and not get angry and frustrated. I tell them to get more excited about the good shots until eventually you get more of those than the bad shots. And then what happens is they tend to get less angry and frustrated with the bad shots because they know, because they believe that, you know, now I've got myself back on the right right mental approach i'm going to hit more good shots than bad shots and hey that's that's the that's the way golf's played i mean if you're a seven out of ten golfer on average you're the best in the world so so nobody's going to hit everyone great so steve i I wanted to talk actually you you mentioned um stuart appleby there and you have a long relationship with him as a coach and i'm wondering if you could just talk about your most successful moment with him in that player coach relationship I first uh, worked with Stuart when he came down. He was a part of the um, junior state squad. Uh, he's 17, nearly 18 years 
uh, 18 years of age. And, uh, you know, you could always tell there was something special about Stuart. He was very, very determined, uh, very hard worker. He'd only been playing golf for a couple of years. Uh, a bit like Greg Norman, didn't start golf till he was 15 or 16. KJ Choi, again, didn't start till he was 16. So this, this idea that you've got to start at three to become a world-class golfer is just, is just not true. But Stuart was good at all sport. One of the things that I noticed about Stuart was if I gave him a challenge uh, to do, he'd always do more. And it was never a, oh, I'm not doing that. He'd always do more. And he was also fiercely determined and competitive. So it wasn't about win at all costs, but... If he, if he didn't win or perform the way he wanted to, he'd just go and get by himself and work and work and work until he'd worked it out and then come back and have another crack at it. So he never shied away from, from anything. So you start to identify, identify that sort of, uh, you know, very early on. But, look, we, we did a lot of goal setting uh, with the state squad and then with the, uh, with the Institute of Sport. And, and one of Stuart's goals was he wanted to have his first PGA Tour win uh, by the age of 25, which is great. Well, first, you've got to get a PGA Tour card. You know, <laughs> so, so it, was a, you know, it was a fair way down, fair way down the track. But, but his whole goal was about, I'm going to go and play on the, on the PGA Tour. He uh, turned pro, had some good success early on the second tour here in Australia, and then he headed off to Canada to try and play over there. And a few weeks later, he's back. And he came out of the house and I said, what are you doing? What are you doing back? You're going to go to Canada. He said, it's useless. He said, I looked at that. There's very limited opportunity playing on that Canadian tour to get on the Australian, on, on the US tour. So I'm just wasting my time over there. So I said, all right, well, you're going to have to go up to Queensland and play the Tropo tour like we, we all did back in the old days. And then he said, no, I'm going straight to the States. I'm going to go and I'm, I'm going to get my... Uh, go to the tour school over there, which you could in that day, go through all the, those, go through all the stages. So I'm going to, I'm going to get, my, get my card and I'm going to get there that way. So, so which he did, he you know, went through, played up in Queensland, went over to the US, got his card for the second tour, got on that. In those days, uh, it was only top five got their PGA Tour card. Stewart won his first event on the second tour, which was called the, the Nike Tour back then. It became the... Uh, Corn Ferry Tour now, but uh, Stuart won his first event in Mexico in a seven-hole playoff against a Mexican guy. He was lucky to get out of Mexico alive. <laughs> first ever event. Anyway, he won two tournaments that year on the second tour, and he was age uh, 23 at this stage. Finished top five, got his card on the, uh, on the main tour. Played all year on the main tour. Didn't quite make the top 25, finished about 128. Had to go back to tour school. Went back to tour school, got his card. Then uh, Honda that year, which was about his fourth event or fifth event of the year, he, uh, he won. He won his first event, age 25, on the, on the PGA Tour. First of nine wins in 11 or 12 seconds and a $30 million career. It was a pretty handy pretty handy career so when you say what's your biggest success being a part of that process from 18 to 25 of a young man who was determined he was going to get on the PGA Tour and win on the PGA Tour by 25 and, and he did. Must have been very satisfying actually to see one of your charges move on and, and, and actually give you some 
edification that the yeah. techniques that you were teaching back then in the VIS were working. So congratulations. And look, once again, Paul, I didn't hit a shot. Sometimes that's the best coaches. They just don't have any experience in the sport at the elite level, but they're able to tap into to the, yeah. the energy and the uh, education around the sport. Yeah, no, it was, uh, you know, that was, that was pretty special when you work with a player. And that was my first real PGA Tour win as a, I mean, I'd, I'd given lessons to Ian Baker Finch and Wayne Grady and players like that over the years who'd won on the, on the PGA Tour. But this was actually somebody I'd coached for, for six or seven years at that stage who, um, you know, who went on and had his, had his first win. So it was great. Steve, you've written multiple books about golf, yep. and I've also heard that you say, you've said that there's more books written on golf uh, and golf technique than any other sport, every other sport combined. And I tried to ratify that on Amazon, but it was too hard because they don't give you numbers. So I'll just uh, take your, your word for it. But I wanted I, to I know- don't, look. I, I, I heard that, and I heard, I've heard nobody uh, nobody come up with any evidence that it's not true, and it makes sense. I've only got to look at my library down there. But, uh, you know, right throughout history, there's been many, many books written on, on golf because that's the nature of the game. Everyone goes, the answer's got to be in this book. I mean, I'm part of the problem. I mean, there's, everyone's got multiple golf books and magazines and DVDs. And, I mean, I wrote four of them. I'm part of the problem. You know, it's, it's, it's sadly, information, uh, it's a bit like going to Dr. Google. There's a lot of self-diagnosis goes on out there. And then the old saying, paralysis by analysis, uh, there's, there's too much information out there for a lot of people's own good. Is that the problem? Because you've said that, you know, there's all this information out there actually and golfers just aren't improving. So I'm wondering, are they hopeless, are golfers just hopeless optimists or is it simply not possible to improve beyond a certain point given your, um, you know, your dynamics? Everyone can be a, a lot better. I, uh, a few years ago, I gave a, a client, a friend of mine, long-time friend of mine now, he'd never had a lesson off me. He'd played golf for 30 years and never played off a handicap of better than 19. And we were walking around a golf tournament together and, uh, and he was talking about how frustrated he was that he's, he's had hundreds of lessons. And I turned to him, I said, you've never had a lesson off me. And he said, you wouldn't want to give me a lesson. <laughs> he said, you only, you only coach good players. He said, you wouldn't want to give me a lesson. He said, I'd be your worst nightmare. Anyway, I said, I want you to come and have a series of lessons off me. You've never played off better than 19 in, in 30 years. And he said, no. And I said, I want you to have a series of, series of lessons. I said, I'll give you a full money back guarantee if I can't get your handicap down. Well, he came along and we, we committed to having a series of lessons. I think it was over about 12 weeks. We we're going to have one lesson a week over 12 weeks. And I mapped out the improvement cycle and the four training factors and the confidence cycle, all the stuff that I've been doing with Tour Pros and Institute of Sport. I said, this all applies to you. He said, I haven't got time to do all of that. I said, no, no, it's, 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 at, it's at your level. So we, we have uh, the improvement cycle model. We have elite, A grade, B grade, C grade and novice. So you identify where you are. Am I a novice or C grade or B grade or A grade in all of those categories? And when we're just going to keep going through these little improvement cycles in all the key areas of your game and see how we go. So cut a long story short, uh, about four months after we started, he shot 77 off the stick in the first round of the club championship and his handicap came down to 11. It's possible for everybody. 
but it needs somebody a bit like a personal trainer because it's so easy to get sidetracked and go into what we call the reactive cycle in golf. And the reactive cycle is spending all day trying not to make the last mistake you made. You know, try not to swing too quick, try not to hit off the back foot, try not to come over the top of it, try not to hit it fat. So your brain doesn't hear anything other than the message. You know, it's like, don't think of the colour red. What colour are you thinking of, Paul? Red. You know, so, yeah, so don't, don't hit it fat is <laughs> the only message that goes in there is fat. So getting people in that mode of always trying to do something in the improvement cycle, it is possible. And look, I've done it with a, with a career tragic golfer who probably had more golf books than me. He stuck to the plan and he's still to this day uh, even though he's getting you know, a few years older now, plays you know in between a handicap of about 12 and 15, so comfortably. So that's after 30 years of many lessons and buying every new set of clubs that came out and every driver and part of that, he, he never got any better than 19. Steve, Everyone can get better. Steve, what do you enjoy most about being a coach? Just that, what I just explained. <laughs> it's just it's being able to identify... Here's another uh, story, which I, you know, I'd love to go back and play again. Like everybody goes, you know, if only I knew back then what I know now. But, but there's only three ways a golf swing changes. There's only ever three things running in the background in our nervous system that cause changes in the golf swing. So my job is to identify those things. And when I do identify it, it's sort of like an aha moment. That's what it is. And then when you tap into that and you start to see the swing change and the contact and the ball flight or, the, or, or whatever start to change, the, the student just lights up because it's just, I've never hit a shot that solid. I've never compressed the ball like that. I've never hit that, that draw shot. But, so here are the three ways of swing changes, which goes back to all of those books. The three ways are a concept as a, as a reaction or a reflex or a physiological change. Now, concept is information. So there's books, DVDs, golf lessons, self-analysis. So there's no shortage of information out there. But the two biggest reasons the golf swing changes is as a reaction to something or as a physiological change, which you could say is a reaction to something. But normally if it's a reaction to a ball flight, so the slicer slices the ball into the right trees. These days, there's no shortage of information. So you say to the slicer, what are you supposed to do? Well, I'm supposed to get to the top. I'm supposed to shift left, drop the club down, swing from the inside path and release the club. So they can tell you all the things they're supposed to do. Okay, hit a shot for me. So they get up, spin off the back foot, leave the face open, carve it into the right trees. So would you do that for? I don't know. I can't stop doing this. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I can't stop doing it. Because the reaction is much stronger and you're reacting to the ball flight, the fear of hitting it to the right is what causes the action that makes it go to the, go to the right. It's a beautiful thing, which is what I've got a job. So the only way you can fix a reaction, and this is what I was lucky enough to tap into a long time ago now, is you can't fix a reaction with concept. You can understand the reaction with concept, but you can't fix it. All you can do is change the ball flight that caused that reaction. So if somebody's slicing it to the right, teach them how to hook the hell out of it. Just get up and teach them how to hook the hell out of it. Just go and then hit enough of those hooks 
where they can then balance the whole thing out. So rather than trying not to do something, they're trying to do something. I'm now not trying not to slice, I'm now trying to hook the ball. And then you teach them the technique of how to hook the ball and their brain switches in uh, doing mode rather than trying not to do mode and they get up and start hitting some hooks. Now, the fun thing for me is that they come back and go, you know, there's just as many trees on the left side of the fairway as the right. I never knew that. <laughs> but at least they can hit a hook shot now. Anyway, Stanky. the third way of spring changes is a physiological change, and that's age, injury, fatigue, diet, other activities. Mm -hmm. And once again, if your swing has changed because of a physiological change, you can't fix it with concept. You can't fix it with a reaction. You have to, you know, if you're back stiff because it's the start of spring and you're pulling weeds out in the garden, and because of that, you're lifting up and topping the ball, you can try like crazy not to lift up and top the ball. The fix is go and get a massage. <laughs> you know, take a neurofin. You've got the physiological changes, what's caused the, the swing to change, so fix the physiological change. Steve, you've got such energy for coaching and you are so articulate and insightful, I guess. I didn't realise there was such a psychological element to playing golf. But I'd like to sort of ask one, ask one last question if I could. And it's this, it's what is the legacy you think you've left so far as a coach? I know that you are still going and you're not finished yet, but you've had a great journey to this point and uh, you've influenced many, many, many golfers along the way. And how would you describe the legacy that, that is behind you so far? I'm very proud of the fact that I was one of the founding, well, I was the founding head coach of the Institute of Sport, but one of the founding coaches that realised there was much more to golf coaching than just fixing golf swings and giving a golf lesson. So I kind of paved the way, uh, you know, with a group of people that I've worked with for many years for uh, career golf coaches in Australia. And there's people now, that's their full-time job. But back when I first started doing it, most of the time you got a golf lesson, there was very few full-time full -time golf coaches. So from that point of view, I'd, you know, I'd like to be remembered as one of the founders creating a, a career opportunity for, for full-time full -time golf coaches. But as far as, uh, you know, changing the game, you know, this game's been around for a long time. I think I've helped a lot of players to get to where they want to go I'd like to be remembered, I guess, for being a, you know, a genuine, empathetic person who really, really cares about their student or the person they've worked with being the best that they can possibly be. And, uh, and I, I think that is why I can say I've had such long relationships, you know, over 30 years with Stuart Appleby and KJ, you know, to coach a Korean for 10 years. Most of them get sacked, you know, six months is a long time to work with a, with a Korean player. But all the players I've worked with and all the people that I know right throughout their career, I can you know, pretty comfortably sit in the room with all of them and know that you know, I gave them my best shot when I, was, uh, when I was helping them with their golf game. Steve Band, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a wonderful discussion and I can't wait to share it with my father and my brother. <laughs> Good on you, Paul. Enjoy talking to you. Thanks. The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, it's Paul here and you have been listening to our discussion with Steve Ban. The key highlights for me were his thoughts on positive emotional anchoring and how focusing on it will allow you to improve your game, the relationship between the golfer and the caddy and the boundaries that need to be respected in order for this relationship to work well, 
and the differences between the yips, which he describes as an involuntary reflex and choking, and the practical advice he gives on handling both. I hope you enjoyed it as much as Jim and I did. In our next episode, we will be speaking to the inspirational Penny Cooler Reed. Someone and everyone's always going to tell you that you can't do something. Oh, you're too short, you're too slow, uh, you're not fast enough, you know, you don't have the right um, body type, etc, etc. And for me, during that time, all I could think about was, stuff you. Like, how do you know what I can't do? You have no idea what I'm capable of. And when everyone sort of said to me, you know, I don't understand why you want to play footy. One, because I bloody love it. Two, because I'm, I'm pretty good at it. Three, it's because you said that I can't. And just before we go, coaches are not usually the type of people who seek the spotlight. And so if you can put us in contact with a great coach that you know has a unique story to share, then we would love to hear from you. You can contact us using the details in the show notes. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com